Now, would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24? Luke chapter 24 and verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Amen. And God's word is inspired. Uh, it is the word of God, and I trust you all accept it like that. Uh, and this is the word from God himself. On the 18th of June, 1815, Wellington defeated Napoleon in the Battle of Waterloo. News of the great victory would be the cause of great celebration and jubilation throughout the British Isles because many weren't expecting uh, that battle to be won. But in days before Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, even the telephone or telegram, news had to be relayed from one place to another by messengers. And so messengers brought the message uh, to the Belgium coast uh, it was then transferred to a ship, and a ship, by the use of semaphore, which is flags spelling out individual letters, by the use of semaphore, semaphore transferred uh, uh, that message to the, someone, to a messenger on top of Winchester Cathedral. So the signal man spelled out the word Wellington, and then defeated but then, just then a fog descended on the ship and the message was put out all over uh, England that Wellington was defeated and there was great fear and gloom among the people. Wellington defeated. But three hours later, the fog lifted uh, and was dispelled. The message was completed. Wellington defeated the enemy. And as that news filtered out, the people's gloom and their darkness turned to light and rejoicing. Now, in our studies in the Gospel of Luke, we are at that in-between stage. To everyone, not least of all his own disciples, Christ is defeated. But the message is incomplete. It yet has to be finished. When Christ rose victoriously, triumphing over his enemies... And in our study this morning, we want to see how news began to filter out uh, to uh, the followers of Jesus and indeed to the wider uh, world. Christ defeated his enemies. Now, it's interesting to me that the first witnesses of the resurrection were a group of women. Some of them are named there. You'll notice in verse 10, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others. Mark tells us, 
that Salome was there, but others are unnamed, maybe six or seven, maybe up to a dozen, we can't be sure. Now, that in itself is uh, very important because it adds authenticity to the story because women were not considered to be reliable witnesses in Pharisaical uh, Judaism. Every morning, a Jewish man would stand up and he would thank God that God hadn't made him a beast, a Gentile, and a woman. Now, having been in the labor ward on three occasions, I sometimes thank God that he didn't make me a woman, but for different reasons, for different reasons. Uh, A woman's was considered to be inferior, and a woman's testimony was invalid in a court of law. Now, if the gospel uh, writers wanted to fabricate the story of the resurrection, there's no way that they would have chosen women to be the recipients of the revelation. That just wouldn't have happened. The whole narrative breathes authenticity. In fact, Uh, uh, If anything, the men in the story uh, are painted in a very poor light. So it's the women that we want to look at this morning. And I want you to notice four things. The reason they came, the report they heard, the rebuke they received, and the reaction they met. So first of all, the reason they came. Look at verse 1. On the first day of the week, uh, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. These women are the women who are mentioned at the end of chapter 23. Just go up to verse 55, and we'll remind ourselves of those uh, words that we looked at last week. Verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was led. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. If you can remember back to our last study, this secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, had come uh, forward, aided by Nicodemus, and taken and prepared the body of our Lord for burial. They had to act quickly because Jesus died at 3 o'clock on the Friday, uh, and the Jewish Sabbath began at 6 o'clock on the Friday evening. So they had a window of three hours to request the body, to prepare the spices for the body, to prepare the body itself, and to bury the body, all of which they managed to do on time. And as they led the body of our Lord to rest, these same women watched and witnessed everything. And then, after resting on the Sabbath, which they were commanded to do very early in the morning, John says, while it was still dark, we would say at the crack of dawn, they set out for the tomb. Now, we want to ask ourselves, why did they do that? Why did they go to the tomb? Well, in one sense, it's perfectly natural and normal, uh, a perfectly natural and normal thing to do. This is the great concern over the disappeared, those who were taken and murdered during the Troubles and buried in unmarked graves. The relatives want closure. They want to bury the remains of their loved ones. They want to uh, lay them to rest at a place where they can go. It's part of the grieving process to go to the grave and spend time there. But with these women, I think their motives were slightly different. I think they acted out of love and loyalty, first out of love. If you look at verse 56 of chapter 53, 
We're told then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now these spices and ointments were used to prepare the body for burial. In a Jewish burial ceremony, they first of all washed the body and then uh, wrapped it limb by limb uh, with linen strips and then the torso. In between the strips, they put spices and ointment. Now, the spices these women brought were burial spices. Now, remember Nicodemus uh, had provided spices for burial from our last study. And John tells us he provided 75 pounds of burial spices. Now, that was an excessive amount. Nicodemus was sacrificing to bring that amount of spices for uh, the, the, the body. Um, rabbis were buried with 40 pounds of spices. King Herod, Herod the Great, was buried with 60 uh, pounds of spices. And yet Nicodemus uh, buries our Lord with 75 pounds uh, of spices. And these women witnessed it. They saw Joseph and Nicodemus wash the body, wrap the body, and load the linen with this excessive amount of ointment and spices. Their spices, the women's spices, were totally unnecessary. Jewish burial customs demanded much less than already had been provided, and yet they came with spices and perfumes to anoint the body. Why would they come? They didn't need to come. It wasn't necessary to come. The job already had been done. And there is only one explanation as to the reason they came. They came out of love. They loved him. And in this extravagant act of devotion to him, they wanted to provide more spices and ointments for him. It's a bit like the woman in Luke 7, who you remember broke the alabaster jar of perfume, a family heirloom worth thousands of pounds in today's money and poured it out on the feet of Jesus. It was a reckless, extravagant act of worship. And Jesus said, he who has been forgiven little loves little, but by implication, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And the same is true here. These women didn't need to bring these spices. Nicodemus already had provided the spices. He was more than generous, but still they come because they loved him. That's the first thing, their love for him. Secondly, they came because of their loyalty to him. It's important that we know a little bit of the background to these women. Uh, We're first introduced to them in Luke chapter 8 and verse 2, when uh, Jesus traveled from town to town back in Galilee. These women accompanied him, supporting him and his disciples out of their own means. They followed him to Jerusalem and Uh, In chapter 23 and verse 49, we're told that they stood at the cross and witnessed him die. And then, as we have noticed in uh, chapter 23 and verse 55, they witnessed the burial. And then in chapter 24, at the crack of dawn, they make their way to the tomb on the Sunday morning. Now, how many disciples were at the cross? One, John. How many disciples came to the burial? None. How many rose early on that Sunday morning to go to the tomb? None. And when they heard the reports of these women, only two, Peter and John, go to the tomb. These women displayed remarkable loyalty to Jesus. 
Think about it. Going to the tomb while it was still dark. That was a dangerous thing to do. No street lighting in those days. Going to the tomb knowing that a a detachment of rough soldiers are guarding the tomb. Think of the hostility of the Jewish leaders if they had discovered that the women were bringing these spices to anoint the body. Now, of course, their hearts were ruling their heads. They weren't thinking straight. Mark tells us it was only as they made their way to the tomb they began to ask themselves who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb. What they needed was 11 big burly men, perhaps two fishermen, who were strong enough to protect them and strong enough to roll that uh, stone away. But none of the disciples, not one, was there. But the woman, in spite of the danger to themselves, were loyal to the last. You know the expression, man up. I've had that expression said to me on three occasions. I have a thing about my eyes. And when I went for my cataract operation, before a needle ever went near the eye, when she was putting ointment into my eye, I was turning away. And the nurse said to me, Mr. Kareem, man up. Man up. When we were uh, at uh, Alton Towers, I was standing in the queue to go into one of the most fearsome rides, oblivion. And I backed out at the last minute, and Gail said to me, man up, man up. But if we were taking these women into consideration, we would change that expression, and we would say, women up. The disciples' faith dissolved and disappeared. When the shepherd was struck, the sheep were scattered, but the women were faithful women, steadfast women, and they remained faithful and true to the end. Do you love him? Are you loyal to him? Does your commitment to him lead you to be extravagant in your love towards him and loyal to him in your steadfastness for him? The reason they came. The second thing I want you to notice is the report they hear. They needn't have worried about who was going to roll the stone away because when they arrive, the stone has already been rolled away. Notice that word roll. It means the same in Greek that it does in English, to roll something. Now, this stone at the entrance of the tomb wasn't a round boulder that was rolled into place and could be rolled in any direction like you see depicted in some of the pictures that you see of the tomb. It was a a circular disk round and flat, a bit like a, a millstone. You know those extra strong mints that you get, those big round flat mints? That's the shape uh, of, of the stone that was in front of the tomb, flat and round. And it was rolled into position, and it was rolled into a groove at the entrance to the tomb. Now, Matthew tells us there was an earthquake at the time of the resurrection, but it wasn't that The disc fell out when the earthquake happened because it was rolled out. It was supernaturally rolled away. We are told an angel rolled it away. I wasn't joking when I said it would take 11 big burly men to roll this stone away. It's much easier to roll a stone into a groove than to roll it out of a groove. But it was rolled away supernaturally by an angel. 
Now, why was the stone rolled away? Do you ever think of that? Why was the stone rolled away? Well, it wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out because the resurrection body of Jesus had supernatural powers. He could appear and disappear. He could pass through doors. And we know that he passed through the grave clothes and left those grave clothes intact. This stone was rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let the woman in. And when they go in, they don't find the body. They see the grave clothes uh, empty, and they receive this angelic report uh, there in verse 5, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. He has risen. In other words, he's alive, and the tomb is no place for a person who is living. Uh, they have this authoritative uh, cry of the angel, he is not here, but he is risen. What a statement that is. That is. He's not here. That was stating the obvious. He is risen. That's the not so obvious explanation. He has risen. You know, on Easter Sunday, we say, the Lord is risen. Well, we did last year anyway. And the congregation uh, respond, Christ is risen indeed. And that sort of creedal confession goes back to the early church, and it's based on the announcement of the angel here. But that's not quite what the angel said. Because the angel in Greek uses the aorist passive. And that carries the force not so much he is risen or he has risen, but rather he has been raised. That this was something done for him. That's what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead. Uh, that, that he didn't raise himself. It wasn't simply that he had risen, but God raised him. And the fact that God raised him was a divine vindication and validation of his work. Paul says in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. In other words, the fact that the Father raised him assures us that Christ's sacrifice has been accepted and that salvation is completed and that we are justified before him. It's God's seal and acceptance upon the work of Christ that the work of Christ has been accomplished. What an announcement. What a report. What good news these women received. He is not here. That was obvious. The tomb was empty. He has been raised, supernaturally raised, divinely raised. And in that resurrection, the Father approves and accepts, of all, accepts all of the work of the Son. He has been raised for our justification. And the empty tomb confirms that those who have trusted in Christ are accepted by Christ. The report they hear, he is not here, he has been raised. The reason they came, the report they hear, the third thing I want you to notice is the rebuke they receive. Look at verses 6 and 7. He is not here but has risen or has been raised. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of wicked men 
and be crucified and on the third day rise. And the third day rise. You see, in that statement, why do you seek the living among the dead? There's a rebuke. You shouldn't be here. This tomb is a place for dead people, but he's not dead. He is living. And here in verses 6 and 7, we're told why they are rebuked. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee. The angels challenged them to remember the passion prophecies that Jesus made while he was with them in Galilee. On at least three occasions, uh, he told them that he would be delivered into the hands of sinful men, that he would be crucified, and on the third day, he would be raised again. Remember after Peter's great compa- uh, confession at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter, answering on behalf of the disciples, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus immediately tells them that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And on three recorded occasions, perhaps more, Jesus explicitly and directly told them that he would rise. And these women heard that, but they didn't see the significance of it at the time. It didn't didn't register with them. They failed to remember. They heard, but they didn't hold on to the promise that Jesus uh, made. And that's so true with us, isn't it? Even, even this table. Do you ever read the words in the front of it? This do in remembrance of me. This table is a, an accommodation to our weakness. How could I forget him who loved me and gave himself for me? How could I forget him who went to such extraordinary lengths to rescue me, to lay down his life, to purchase my salvation, to rescue me from the very mouth of hell? How could I forget him? But we do. We do. How dare we criticize these women when they forget what Jesus said to them. But so often we're like them. Problems come into our lives. Difficulties arise. And, uh, and we forget those wonderful promises that have been given to us and that, uh, that remind us of uh, his love towards us. And I want you to notice the change that remembering the words brought to them. Look at verse 8. And they remembered his words. They remembered what he said. And then faith began to rise within their hearts again. Now, Luke doesn't record this, but just turn back with me to Matthew chapter 28 for a moment. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 8. I think this is really significant, and I don't want you to miss it. So if you have a Bible, please turn back to Matthew 28, verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and, notice this, and great joy, and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now you see that. So they're, they're on their way uh, to tell the disciples And they are full of joy, and they meet Jesus, and they worship Jesus, which is significant. 
Jesus is God of very God, or else it's blasphemy to worship him. But they worshiped him. But notice that the joy was present before they met the risen Christ. Do you see that? Now, we would expect that they went full of fear back to tell the disciples. They met Jesus and then were full of joy. But no, they were full of joy before they met Jesus. It was what Jesus said to them. He reminded them of what he told them. It was Christ's word. They believed Christ's word, and Christ's word brought joy to their hearts that he was indeed risen. And that's such a simple point, but a very important point, a crucial point that faith flounders. When we forget the word of God, faith fails when we let go of the gospel of God. Faith is feeble when we don't appropriate the promises of God. That that it was the word of God itself, the word of Christ that brought them joy in the midst of their sadness. We need to remember his promises. We need to appropriate his promises to his heart. Promises of his presence, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Promises of his protection, that he will guard us in all our ways. Promises of his provision, he will supply all our need according to his riches and glory. Promises of a power that he gives us incomparably great power. Promises of his providence, that he will perfect that which concerns us. Downhearted, discouraged, depressed, and doubting. Could it be that you have forgotten what he has said to you? That you need to keep the promises. You need to rely on his promises. And you need to appropriate those promises to yourself. The rebuke they received. The reason they came. The report they heard. The rebuke they received. The last thing I want you to notice is the reaction they met. Look at verses 9 to 12. Verse 9, and returning from the tomb, they told, notice this, all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at all that had happened. We're told that when they returned from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and the others. Now, Matthew, Mark, and John all tell us that these women are commanded to go and tell the disciples. As Augustine said in the fifth century, they became apostles to the apostles. Apostle means messenger. They became uh, a messenger to the messengers. Now, notice the reaction of the apostles. But these words, verse 11, seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I want you to get the force of that. They believed uh, these things to be an idle tale. The NIV says idle nonsense. The word uh, literally means a tall tale. It's used of fables and fairy stories. It was used in medicine of someone who was delirious. 
The New American Standard Version translates it as nonsense. I like the way that uh, J.B. Phillips puts it in his pa uh, paraphrase. It struck them as sheer nonsense. Sheer nonsense. Now, these women told them everything, all that they had seen and heard, the stone being rolled away, the testimony of the, of the angels, the appearance of Christ to them on the way back, but also the words of the angel, remember how he told you in Galilee that he would suffer and that he would rise again. So all of that was told to them. But all of it appeared like an empty tale. So they not only reject, and this is the serious point, they not only reject the testimony of the woman, they reject the testimony of Christ, the Word of God. Because the angel said, remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised to life. That's the message the women brought. They brought the Word of Christ. They brought the Word of God. And they, the disciples, reject the Word of Christ. And they reject the Word of God. It was hogwash. Tittle-tattle. Sheer nonsense. The Word of Christ was dismissed. Not just the Word of the woman. Not just the report of the woman. But the Word of Christ was rejected. With the women, they couldn't remember. With the disciples, they wouldn't remember. They rejected the testimony, not only of the women, but the testimony of Christ. Now, that's a serious thing, to reject the Word of Christ, the Word of God itself. So strong was the power of unbelief in the majority of the disciples that they can't even get off their backsides and go to investigate to see if these things were true. Now we're told in verse 12 that Peter rose and went to the tomb, stooping in and looking. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling. That word marveling is too strong. It's uh, from, the, the, uh, from that Greek word we get the word traumatized. He, he was full of wonder. He's, he's uh, perplexed. He, he didn't know what to make of it. Now, we know that John went with him to the tomb. So, of these 11 disciples, only two go to the tomb, and uh, the other nine sit back and do nothing. He had told them on the third day he would be raised. It's not that they refused to believe. They, uh, it's not that they uh, can't believe. It's they refused to believe. If it's, it's the testimony of Christ that they rejected. Now, that's crucially important. Now, you know that song, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Well, that's true in a sense. But, but our faith is not based upon subjective feelings. He lives because the Word of God and the testimony of Christ is that he is alive. My confidence in the resurrection is not based on subjective feelings, but objective truth. 
It's the Word of God that tells me it is so. It's the Word of God that validates my experience. My experience doesn't validate the Word of God. And these disciples refused to believe what Jesus had said. You remember in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 17, the rich man dies and ultimately goes to hell and he asks Abraham to send back Lazarus to warn his five brothers of the torment to come. He wants a supernatural miracle to waken them out of their lethargy and their spiritual stupor. He wants uh, a ghost like uh, um, Dickens' uh, ghost of Christmas past to go and warn them, to shake them, and awaken them to the danger ahead. And Abraham's answer is very profound. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. All that we need for heaven and to prepare for heaven, all we need for faith and to come to faith, all that we need to sustain us through the perplexities and the difficulties of life is to be found in the Word of God. In the Word of God. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Our faith is not based on feelings but on truth, on truth. Martin Luther said, feelings come, feelings go, feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the Word of God, not else is worth believing. It's the Word of God. That's how we come to faith, and that's how we strengthen faith. And the question I want to ask you is this, do you believe what God has said and what God has revealed? All you need for faith is in this book. And you need to believe what God has said. So maybe you're a Christian this morning and you're struggling with doubts and fears, anxieties and worries. You need to believe His promises. You need to rest in His promises and rely on His promises. You need to appropriate His promises to your heart. You're not a Christian. You need to stop looking for flashes of lighting and miracles and external confirmations of of what God is, is true and God is who He says He is. You need to believe that the Bible is true and that if you come to Him and trust in Him, He will in no wise cast you out. That He was raised for our justification. That He was delivered over for our sins and He was raised for our justification. And if I come to Him and trust in Him, He will accept me and He will never ever turn me away. And the question then is this, do you believe? Are you like the women who did doubt and question and wonder, but when reminded of the promises, they remembered Or like the disciples who, when reminded of the prophecy, still remained in unbelief? That's the question. These women are a wonderful example of true faith. They were reminded of the Word of God. They were reminded of the Word of Christ. And joy flooded into their soul even before they saw the risen Christ with their own eyes. They believed the promise that he had made. The disciples, well, nine of them, even though they were reminded of exactly the same promise, don't budge, don't move, 
they remain in their darkness and despondency until Christ has to come to them physically. Only two get up and go to the tomb, and we know from John's gospel, only one believed when he saw the grave close. Amen.